So I want to, again, extend my welcome. You've been welcomed a few different times. I know that as a, as a pastor, uh, I'm always, I love summer. I, I love the fact that we can go away. I love going away, but I've shared it with a few of you recently. I'm also really excited as when we get to reconvene as a church. And so as much as I do miss some of what summer has brought, I am really grateful to be here together with you all today. And if you are new here, if you're uh, visiting, I just want to extend a very warm welcome to you. I'm excited to get to know you better, and I hope and trust that today you've received a warm welcome and also will be encouraged by the worship that we do through the songs we sing and through the Word of God as we look at it together, which is what we're about to do. Before we jump in, I want to remind you all that today will be a day in which we'll have a sermon Q&A at the end of our teaching time. So I'm going to encourage you all uh, that, that if you have questions that come up during the sermon, uh, you are going to be able to ask those questions anonymously. So I don't know, it's behind me, that's good. So if you want to ask any questions, you can even now get your phones out and you can scan that QR code or you can go to menti.com and, and type in that code. And what that will do is it will bring up a page on your web browser that will allow you to ask an anonymous question. And at the end of our teaching time, then we'll have the service leader, Corinne, will come up and Pastor Earl will join me. And then we'll hold a little time here of answering these anonymous questions. And so I would ask again that you try to keep your questions mostly focused on the topic that we're learning from today, this morning. I know there's many questions of faith that you have. And if we can try to leave these things to Revelation 1, that would be great. Uh, and also, this isn't stump the pastor. It's far too easy to do. So if you're just trying to catch me, you know, in a, in a, in, in a conundrum or a dilemma, don't try to do that. These are honest questions you may have. But I also know that going into a book like Revelation, there may be very many questions that we bring with us. So we're going to do Q&A fairly consistently during this time. So you have the opportunity to interact with what we're learning together. So we have that to look forward to. One of the things that can be a pet peeve for many of us is when somebody finishes our sentences for us. <laughs> or even when we're interacting with somebody else and we see that happening to somebody in that conversation. We don't want someone, oh yeah, kids, you're dismissed. They're like, we don't want to listen to this. I'm like, why is everyone leaving at once? <laughs> that usually happens partway through the sermon, not at the very beginning. Good, good. Can I start over? Let's do it again. We don't like it at all when someone finishes our sentences for us. We don't like it when someone won't let us speak for ourselves. And here's a, a quick video uh, that kind of points out this fact. Hey, heard you were having trouble. Oh no, you're that guy who won't stop saying yeah, Ronathan. Ronathan. Yeah, I was, but uh, I heard people hate that, so I am committed to being a better listener. Okay, that's great. Yeah. Okay, well, I think there's something wrong with, with your computer. No, my phone, actually. Oh. I just, I can't Can't update to the new OS, yeah. No, access. The internet. No, my e- Trade. Mail. Got it. E-trip. Mail. Mail. Email. Email. Okay, Got it. Yeah. the way you keep finishing my sentences is really, really helpful, I know. Annoying. Yeah. Uh-huh. You keep mm. guessing wrong. Just let me finish what I'm... Eating. Eating? Eating. <laughs> really? You thought I was going to say, say eating? eating? Yeah. Okay, yes, that time I was going to say eating, eating, but not the time... Of your life. No, I was saying not the time before that. None of your guesses make... Him an offer you can't refuse. Sense. Just shut up for one... Direction. 
Why are you doing Drugs? this? Drugs? This. Why are you doing this? Oh, I'm just helping the conversation along and just showing you that I understand. But you clearly don't understand. Pants. Stand. Okay, this would take less time if you just waited half a second and really listened to my problem instead, instead of, of piloting a single engine Cessna to a remote jungle in Peru in quest for some legendary Inca artifact that was supposedly hidden shortly after Spanish conquest and then finding it and learning that it's far too powerful for any one man to control regardless of his intentions and casting it into the ocean. Yeah, I get that a lot. Interrupting. Yeah, or that, sure. That's so, what I was going to say. Uh, okay, whatever. Um, it, your problem is... Getty. Jiggy with it. My... Sharona, right. Email on the my phonograph. Phone. Phonograph. Just phone. 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 Yeah, phone. Oh, yeah, I can help you with that. <laughs> Definitely. I don't know why you didn't just say that to I, begin with. I did. But, yeah, there you go. You forgot to update your password, so the email wasn't forwarding properly. Oh. That easy, huh? Mm, just that easy. Okay, well, thank you. you. Yes, thank For you. For being a friend. Just don't touch me. <laughs> Infuriating, isn't it? Oh, why can't you just let me speak for myself? And when it comes to the book of Revelation, I'm afraid that often in the evangelical church, we have not allowed this book to speak for itself. We come to it looking for it to say something, already having made up our mind on what it's going to say, uh, coming to it with all these preconceived ideas. And so what I want to encourage all of us to do over the next 11 weeks as we open up the Word of God is to put aside these preconceived ideas, our fears, our worries, these things that we do not know for sure. Don't make up Revelation's mind beforehand. Don't decide ahead of time what it will say. Instead, allow the book to speak for itself. That's one of our goals. We want to approach the book of Revelation seeking to understand what would the original message have been to those who it was first written to. Revelation is a book that's designed to, to be understood. So yes, I, I'm grateful to come here and to, to lead our time of teaching and, and I have some degrees that I think are, are helpful. I've taken a course that's going to aid me greatly, but none of that is necessary in order to understand Revelation. It doesn't take special credentials. You don't have to have a seminary degree. This is a book that is written along with the other books of the Bible that is, that is designed for it to be understood. God has a truth that he wants you to know and understand each and every one of you. So we should not allow some of these things to get in the way. Not only do we want Revelation to speak for itself, but we also then want to apply the truths that we learn to our own spiritual journey. This is not just about decoding a mystery. It's about learning God's truth in such a way that changes that we live, the way we live today. Revelation is designed for the present. It is not limited to the future. And so as we give the book its own voice, as we seek to not finish its sentences, we also want to apply these things so that when we leave every Sunday morning, we will now be challenged to live differently because of what we have learned. Now, in order to do all this, we will need to set up some ground rules for good, solid interpretation of the book of Revelation. 
Uh, I'm a baseball fan, so the term ground rules comes easily to me. When you play baseball, you need to have some of these ground rules that everybody knows so that the rules are understood by all. There are universal ground rules that are true in every ballpark across the major leagues. One example is, if you watch baseball, you watch the Jays later on today, uh, you'll notice that on the outfield walls, there's often a yellow line at the top of the wall. Uh, That means that in every single ballpark, if a ball hits a yellow line, it's in play. A yellow line is in play no matter where you go, a universal ground rule. And yet baseball is unique because they are, all the games are played on a different playing surface that's not the same. You see in, in, in every football field and every soccer pitch and basketball court and hockey rink are regulation size, but every ballpark is unique and different. So there are also unique and different ground rules for every ballpark. For example, about seven years ago, Karen and I went to Chicago and I got to go to Wrigley Field and that year it turned 100 years old. It has some unique characteristics, one of which is that on the outfield walls, they have ivy grown on the walls. It's full of ivy. So there's a unique ground rule. What happens if a ball gets stuck in the ivy? It will only happen in Wrigley Field, nowhere else. Well, it becomes a double, literally a ground rule double. So as we approach Revelation, we need to know from the outset what are our ground rules to accurate and consistent interpretation. And that is largely the groundwork that we're going to lay together today. Most of these will actually be universal ground rules, just rules that are, are always... It, we're able to use for good, solid biblical interpretation, no matter where in the Bible we're looking or reading. But some of them will be more specific to a unique book, because Revelation is certainly unique. And before we dive in together, let's pray one more time. Jesus, we have sung your praises already today. We've talked a lot about, uh, in anticipation, about this sermon series and And we've looked a lot and read a lot and maybe not enough through Revelation. And God, no matter what our preconceived ideas may be, I pray that in humility we would just set some of those aside and really go about this task of of seeking for this book to speak for itself. God, I pray, as we pray often here at Stony Brook, that your spirit would be our guide into your truth. That we're not trying to do this on our own power. We're not trying to do this, uh, make up our own minds. We're trying to just humbly uh, sense the leading of your spirit and that your truth would be clear and be received and would be obeyed. God, as we endeavor to do this, I pray that you would bless us in this. We ask this all in your name. Amen. So you can open up your Bibles now if you brought them with you to Revelation chapter 1. And the entire time this morning, I would encourage you to leave those Bibles open. Now you can check and read along with me as we go through Revelation 1. We do have a few different cross-references, but I'll display those on screen for you so that you can always keep your Bible open to Revelation 1 and know what we're talking about in order to stay together. And what are the first words that we read? Chapter 1, verse 1. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the very outset, we are given the title of this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that Greek word for revelation is the word for apocalypse. And apocalypse means to make known or to disclose something that was formerly unknown. The word apocalypse means to reveal something to be true. And already, the very second word that we read in the book of Revelation shows how we have taken a word and ascribed to it meanings that that is not true to its original understanding. Because when I often use the word apocalypse, I'll be talking about a future event, the apocalypse, speaking of the end times. 
Or if there's a, a huge storm that leaves devastation in its wake, I'll say that, that's apocalyptic. But the apocalypse is not, in this instance, a future event. The apocalypse is not an adjective to describe a storm that will end all things. Apocalypse means to reveal something to be true that was not formerly understood in its fullness. So this is the revelation or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. This word is also where we get the uh, phrase apocalyptic literature to describe the unique type of writing that we encounter in Revelation. Yet it's also good for us to know that during the time in which John would have written this book, this letter, and, and the time that it would have been distributed, this was not the only piece of apocalyptic literature. In fact, it was very common during this period in, in Jewish circles and in Christian circles to have apocalyptic literature circulating around. So this was not the only one. But it is certainly a unique genre, a unique, unique way of writing that was written in a way that the others outside of the church would have a hard time understanding, but those, the people of God, would be able to understand. That is one of the ways that it is written in the way that it is. And so this apocalyptic literature is unique, and this is why we're going to outline some of these important ground rules and learn more about this genre of writing. So this is the revelation or apocalypse, but it is specifically revealing things that are true about Jesus Christ. In fact, revelation is this revelation from Jesus himself. In verse 2, we see that it is the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is his testimony of who he is, of who he will be, of what he has done, of what he will do. Jesus is revealing things about himself to us. And yet it is also not just from Jesus, it's about Jesus. He is the main focus of the entire book. And so if we find ourselves getting confused or getting overwhelmed as we continue to read, if we step back and say, what does this reveal about Jesus? Then we know that is always the main point. That is the pillar that has been given to us right at the outset by John. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is true about him? As we continue to read in verse 3, we see that blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Oh, good. I'm in, I'm in, good, I'm in good space then, right? And blessed are those who hear. And blessed are those who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. So yes, Revelation is an apocalypse, apocalyptic literature to reveal what is true. It is also a prophecy. And as, as we have learned together from times past, we know that Jewish prophecy and Christian prophecy was not just about telling the future. It was about declaring God's truth in such a way that demanded a response. And often they would declare God's truth looking to the future. But all of that was to demand a response of obedience for the people of that day. And that's exactly what Revelation wants as well. The blessing is found in a response of obedience. Blessed are those who keep what is written in it. And this is our goal. To live differently because of what is revealed to be true about Jesus Christ. What are we doing the next 11 weeks? We want to live differently because what is revealed to be true about Jesus Christ, no matter what the time frame is. 
Let's continue to look at the greetings that are given, picking up in verse 4. It says now, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Well, this is interesting because not only is Revelation apocalyptic literature, not only is it a prophecy, but it's also a letter. And we know that because John signs his name as the author. John, I, John, am writing this letter, and I'm addressing it to the seven churches in Asia. It is written by John. And there is strong church tradition and strong evidence to believe that this is none other than the Apostle John, written at the very tail end of his life. He would have been close to 90 years old. But we can trust that this is the John who is writing this letter, who is writing this revelation, who is receiving these visions. Later on in verse 9, as, as John describes more about himself as the author, he calls himself a partner in the great tribulation or a partner in the tribulation. And so already in the first nine verses, we've come across two words that are charged with context that we have outside of the book. The first was apocalypse, which means to reveal. That's what it's saying in Revelation. And the second is tribulation. Tribulation literally means the great trouble. But John is not talking about a future instance. John is not talking about something to come. He says, I am your partner right now. I am your comrade living with you during the tribulation, during the great trouble. Truly, John and the churches that he was writing to were in the trouble or the tribulation of their time. And by extension, so are we. John experienced this trouble when he was exiled to Patmos. He was not martyred or put to death for what he believed, but he was exiled to this island, and it was during this exile in which he received the visions that we are going to read about together. So the Apostle John has written this letter. He is a partner in the great trouble, and he's addressed this letter to the seven churches that are in Asia. These churches are listed by name in verse 11, and as we continue to read in Revelation, we know that chapters 2 and 3 have messages for each one of these individual churches. Now, unfortunately, because we have a lot of ground to cover, 11 weeks for this book, we are going to skip over chapters 2 and 3 because of these time constraints. But because if we, if we um, go over those chapters, we'll still get a very good idea of the arc of Revelation, of the story, and of the structure of the book as a whole. But even though we have to miss those because of those time constraints, we know that these seven churches are the recipients of this letter. This letter was written to a specific group of people. But it is not just chapters 2 and 3 that are addressed to those seven churches. John addresses them here in chapter 1, and he never unaddresses them the rest of the way. This entire book is a letter addressed to a specific group of people. The whole book of Revelation is written to those churches to make sense of their world during their time and their situation. This is a letter written to those churches. And this brings us to our first ground rule. The message of Revelation, as we interpret it, must have been able to be understood by the original audience. It's a letter written to them. It has to make sense to them. So no hidden messages of nuclear warfare, no hidden messages of modern information tracking, no hidden messages of who that Antichrist might be decoded to be. None of that would have made sense to the original people who this letter was addressed to. Therefore, none of it is a very accurate or helpful interpretation, according to that first ground rule. We must start by asking, how would those initial addressed hearers understand this message? 
That is our starting point. And only after we ask and hopefully answer that question can we take that universal truth and apply it to our own setting. And this is a universal ground rule. Whenever we read God's word, we have to ask ourselves, how would the original audience have understood this to be true? What, does that, what is still true about that, about God and about me and about our relationship? What's still true today and how can I apply that to my life? That is just good biblical interpretation. And it is vital for us to allow revelation to speak for itself. Otherwise, we end up reading our own situation into it, and that is ultimately unhelpful. And so you're tracking with me. You're saying, okay, pastor, I get it. It's a letter addressed to these churches, and that can be a good ground rule. But what were the seven churches in Asia facing? What was their context? How can this be helpful to my understanding of revelation? Well, the context to these churches and all the other churches at that time was one of intense religious persecution at the hands of the Roman government. Either under the reign of Emperor Nero in the AD 60s or the Emperor Domitian later in the AD 90s. Uh, There are commentators that make arguments, good solid arguments for one or the other. And I believe that the context of, of persecution can be true if we accept either one of those situations. I believe it's most likely during the reign of Domitian due to his intense focus on emperor worship. Domitian was someone who demanded people to worship him as a deity. He required his subjects to worship him as Lord and God. Dominus et Deus. Who is God was the question of the day during Domitian's reign. And, and for the Roman subjects, those many who were pantheists, who already had this whole pantheon of gods to add one other god, that was no big deal. We can add the emperor to all the other gods that we, we worship, all these other gods we already have. But to the, to the Jews and to the Christians, to those who were staunch monotheists, this was an incredibly important deal. They could not do that. They could not worship the emperor without taking away the worship that was due to the one true true God. And so because this was required of them, and because they could not give it, they were persecuted and they were killed. And we know that Domitian had over 40,000 Christians killed in AD 92. This was a terrible, terrible time. And so when we understand this to be the backdrop to those churches that the letter is addressed to, then we know that Revelation is about radical discipleship and true allegiance in the face of intense persecution and even potential martyrdom. The questions are, who is truly Lord? The question is, where does your allegiance lie? The question is, are you willing to give up your life for what is revealed to be true? about Jesus Christ. This is the backdrop to the book of Revelation. And as John continues on, he continues to have this opening of a letter in similar language to the the language we might find Paul use in his epistles we have in the rest of the New Testament. He says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth. This is an address, a peace has given to the recipients of this letter, peace from God, the Father who is and was and is to come, from Jesus Christ who is named by name and then peace from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Who, what does that mean? Who would this Represent. It's a good time to let us know that, that numbers are incredibly important in the book of Revelation. They're 
always important. Whenever there's a number, it represents something. It, it points to a greater truth. In the Jewish, uh, Judeo-Christian worldview, seven is the number of completeness or the number of fullness. And so the seven spirits could be understood as the sevenfold spirit, this complete, this full spirit, which could represent the Holy Spirit himself. And so now we have this greeting of peace from God the Father, from Jesus Christ, and the complete Holy Spirit. John is saying, peace from the triune God. And after the greetings, John then chooses to praise Jesus with two things in focus. He gives praise to Jesus first for what he did during his first coming. Listen to this praise. To him, Jesus Christ, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priest to God his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Jesus has come, and what has he done? He has shown his love for us. He has laid down his life for us to free us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us a kingdom and a priesthood. This is the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus, and it is a great and wonderful reminder to those who are being persecuted. He's saying, Jesus has come, and he has done these things. He is worthy of our praise because he has done these things. Amen. What a good place to start. John also continues to praise Jesus, not just for what he has done, but what he will do at his second coming. We continue to read in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Not only is Jesus praised for what he has done, but he is praised for what he will do. He is praised because he will come again. As John describes it, he is coming with the clouds. And we have learned together recently that clouds represent the presence of God. Just as the children of Israel followed the presence of God in the wilderness by his pillar of cloud. And when they finished the tabernacle in the temple, the presence of God came upon that place as a glorious cloud. And when Jesus ascended into heaven at the end of his first coming, he was taken away by the clouds, the presence of God. It will be in that same way that he will come again with the clouds, with the presence of God again. And we are to look forward and, and to anticipate that second coming. And yet there was a warning here in verse 7 that this second coming of Christ will be terrible for some. All the tribes of earth will wail on account of him. Jesus will bring justice. Jesus will bring the righteous wrath of God. And for some who are not finding themselves in the people of God, who have yet to take hold of the truth of that gospel that was just shared earlier on, for some, that day will be terrible. And that warning remains stark. Lastly, Jesus is praised for being the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. That's the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. It reminds us of the eternality of God, who was and who is and who will always will be. Except that's not what John says. That's not the way John describes it. John says he's the God who is and who was, not who always will be, who is and who was and who is coming again. Jesus is the God who is coming again. The future of God is that he is coming again. And against that backdrop of this lack of hope, there is this message of hope that Jesus has not abandoned his people. He is coming again. 
So much of Revelation looks forward to that day. And so here we have a wonderful introduction to this apocalyptic literature, to this prophecy, to this letter, this revelation of Jesus Christ. And now John has his first vision. And boy, howdy, is it a fun one. I'm going to need lots of water for this sermon series, I think. Here we go. John was worshiping when he received his first vision of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's read it together, verses 10 through 16. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Theatria and Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. Again, this is addressed to him, them, the whole book addressed to them. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. What an incredible vision. What a weird thing to see. And this is odd. It's different, and it highlights for us Ground rule number two. Revelation uses imagery and symbolism that must not be taken literally. We cannot read Revelation literally. So one of the things I want to encourage us to do is disconnect this idea that some of us may have that something needs to be literal in order for it to be true because that's not the case. There are some things that must be taken literally. We've already talked about them. There are seven literal churches filled with literal people that now a literal letter has been addressed to. We take that literally. But so much of Revelation is designed to be symbolic. And when we let Revelation speak for itself, we see this to be true. Because John says things in metaphorical language. He says, I saw one like a son of man. And the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame. His feet were like burnished bronze. Revelation is using metaphorical language because this vision is symbolic of a greater truth. So it's not to be taken literally, but that doesn't mean it's not true. Good symbols, great symbols point to a greater truth. And, and, and the way the symbols work is it can make that truth even more powerful than just stating it as a bald fact. And so while we are unused to reading apocalyptic literature, there are other areas in which we are used to having this symbolism make a greater point. One such example could be political cartoons. I'm not sure if you guys watch or read or or see a lot of political cartoons. I looked for some examples, and I tried to stay away from COVID stuff and from other things that would get me in hot water, and I found a few. But here's an example of some political cartoons. Okay, here's the first one, and uh, they're there on on the slides, right? So the first one we have a snail that is carrying some mail that has full of rapid COVID tests. And he says, I see the irony. (laughs) Now, if we were to go to the United States of America, would we literally see snails crawling on the ground? No. It's symbolic 
of the irony of putting rapid tests in snail mail or the old postal service. Great. So we understand that to be symbolic. We don't take that to be literal. What's the second one to have there? Second one is, uh, it, says, it says the Winter Games, and it's got a Ukrainian skier getting chased down by a big Russian bear. Now, if we were to attend the last Winter Games, I don't think we would have literally seen a bear chase any skier down the hill, though I would love to have seen that. I would have watched a lot more of the Olympics if that were true. But it's not literal, it's symbolic to make a greater point, a more impactful point of what's going on with the Russian aggression to Ukraine during that time. Okay, one more political cartoon. Just as an example, we see here a beaver that I believe represents Canada. And the the beaver is puffed up like a balloon and says it's all good. Inflation. Now, Now, we're in Canada and I've yet to see a bunch of beavers floating around inflated like balloons. But I can understand the stress that inflation is putting on our nation financially and maybe even some of the, uh, the denial that we're in. Oh, it's all good. No big deal. No big deal. We understand the message. We know that these things are given to us symbolically, but that doesn't mean they're not true. In fact, the symbolism helps highlight the truth that we're designed to know and to understand. Revelation is much the same way. We need to allow it to speak for itself. So this is a symbolic vision. The question is, not what happened, but what was seen. And what did John see? I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. He sees these seven lampstands, and already we're like, okay, lampstands, I mean, maybe if you have your Bible trivia ready, you know that there's lampstands are in the tabernacle and in the temple, and gold reflects the presence of God. But still, what do these lampstands mean? What do they represent? And thankfully for us, John interprets this for us in the same chapter. Later on in verse 20, he says that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is great. This is the best context clue we could hope for. The seven lampstands are the seven churches, and that helps us with ground rule number three. We need to use clues from the rest of Revelation to help us interpret accurately and consistently. So as we read and as we learn, if we find that we're stuck and things are unclear, we should go to different parts of the book itself because this will all be consistent. It's one work. It's one writing. It's one revelation of many different visions. And what is true and clear in one area can help bring clarity to another area. Not everything will be spelled out for us as helpfully as this, but often we need to use those clues from the book itself to help us understand and to understand well. So the lampstands are the churches, the people of God. And where is Jesus? I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. The lampstands are the church, the people of God, And where is Jesus? Jesus is in their midst. In a world where all the forces seem to be arrayed against them. In a world in which they felt like people of faith, they were good and truly abandoned. In a world that felt like they were losing the war, where is Jesus? He's not abandoned them. He has not left them to their own devices. He has not turned his back on them. He is in their midst. This is one of the great hopes of Revelation 1. And it's true of us today. As we gather today for worship, Jesus is in our midst. He is our common bond, holding us together. He is our strength to persevere through difficult times, even when that difficulty looks different than what was experienced 
by that church long ago. We are not alone, even when the world seems to be arrayed against us. And then John goes on to describe the vision of this Son of Man that he sees. And I want you to keep your Bibles open to Revelation 1. And I'm going to skip over to chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 7 of Daniel. Because in order for us to make sense of this vision, we need to be aware of the visions in the book of Daniel. There's three different ones that matter greatly to Revelation 1. The first is the vision of the Son of Man in Daniel 7, verse 13 to 14. Let me read this for you. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so when John says, I saw one like a son of man, and he is coming again on the clouds, and his kingdom and his dominion will reign forever, we need to know that this has always been true of Jesus. That this has always been true for thousands of years has been a revealed truth by God, all the way back to the time of Daniel. We skip over to Daniel chapter 10. We have another vision that Daniel had that has so many parallels to what John saw. I'll read from you, Daniel 10, verse 5 and 6. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face was like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. So what John has seen in Patmos is something that Daniel has seen before. This is all part of the greater biblical story. And then there's one third vision. The Son of Man came before the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man being Jesus, the Ancient of Days being God the Father. And we'll see in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 to 10, how the Ancient of Days is described. As I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened." So let's go back to Revelation 1. Now that we know all of that important information from Daniel, what do we know? We know that John says, I saw one like the Son of Man. And so we're like, okay, he's talking about the Son of Man. That's all the way he's going to describe Jesus. But look at the way he describes the Son of Man. Wait a minute. There was one like the Son of Man, but his, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. John declares that he sees Jesus, the Son of Man, and then he describes him as the Ancient of Days. This is a claim of divinity. Jesus is God. Jesus is fully God, seen in his glory. He is both the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days. And there is no way that we get the impact of this vision unless we are aware of what Daniel prophesied thousands of years before. Which brings us to ground rule number four. We need to use clues from the rest of Scripture to interpret accurately and consistently. Especially the Old Testament. John paints so many of his pictures that were revealed to him in the language of the Old Testament. There are over 500 quotes and allusions from the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. 500. That's more than all the rest of the New Testament combined. 
we won't understand Revelation. We won't allow it to speak for itself unless we realize that the Old Testament is the backdrop. It's steeped in its language and its stories and its prophecy. We need to be aware. We also need to be steeped in the rest of Scripture. The Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, this deity of Christ is standing in the middle of this lampstands and he is holding seven stars in his right hand. Okay, that's great. Seven. It's another important thing. Uh, it's another important number. Uh, what do the stars mean? Well, this is again interpreted for us in verse 20. The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. Okay, great. Um, but John, what does that mean? <laughs> what does each church have like a guardian angel? Uh, is this angel symbolic, uh, personifies the church? Like, uh, you know, I've read a number of different commentaries and nobody knows for sure. Even here, in which John gives us an important detail, there is no consensus on what it means to have the seven churches or seven angels of the seven churches. We just don't know for sure. Which brings me to the fifth and final ground rule. Sometimes mysteries will go unsolved. If you want something to rep- everything to represent something, if you want me to solve every mystery of Revelation, if you need something to fit into a nice, tidy package, then this book is going to drive you nuts. Because sometimes we just don't know. And if, if we're unclear about something, it is better to allow it to just live in that tension, to remain unsolved, than to try to push something on it that we want it to be true. Sometimes mysteries go unsolved, and sometimes the details that we do know about don't even make sense together. So in verse 10, we read that Jesus' voice was like a trumpet. And in verse 15, Jesus' voice was like the roaring of many waters. So which one is it, John? Which one is it? And the answer is yes. The answer is both. The answer is we are trying to describe the indescribable. We are trying to understand the supernatural. Something is revealed true about Jesus, and sometimes we don't get it all until we see him face to face. Sometimes mysteries will go unsolved. And so John has now experienced this awe-inspiring vision. He turned around, and there it was, and he fell down to the ground like a dead man. And I could hardly blame him, thinking about what he saw. And Jesus, the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, this glorified Christ, comes and places his hand on his shoulder and says, fear not. What a great reminder for us. Why isn't John to fear? Why should the churches not fear? Why should we today not fear? Fear not, Jesus says, for I am the first and the last. I am God eternal. I am the God who was and who is and who is coming again. Fear not, Jesus says, because he has conquered death and has authority over it. I die, I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. And keys denotes authority. Not only did Jesus die and then was raised back to life, but he conquered death. He overcame it. He now has authority over it. Death is not, the authority of death isn't in the hands of Domitian or the Roman emperor. It's not in the hands of his army or his lackeys. It's the hands of Jesus Christ. He holds the keys of death and Hades. He holds the keys of life. He is the one who has the last say. So fear not. And fear not because this eternal conquering Jesus walks in the midst of his church, holding them in his right hand. And that is our picture, that readily understood picture of Revelation 1. Jesus is God. 
He has come once and he is coming again. And during the great trouble that we find ourselves in, until that time comes, he is in our midst, holding us in his right hand. Blessed be those who hear this prophecy and keep the words that are written in it. Let's pray. Father, I am blown away by the power of what we see in this last book of the Bible. I'm blown away by the complexity and the richness of the symbolism and then the simple truths that matter so much to us that we draw out of it. So God, I pray that we would be reminded of your glory, that we would be reminded of your presence and how the presence of God casts away fear. God, I pray that we would worship you truly in spirit and in truth for who you are today, who you've always been, who you will always be, and the fact that you are coming again. Amen.